Hello and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan with the Hindu in Chennai, your host for today. On the night of June 30th, Hong Kong began implementing a new national security law that gives sweeping powers to the authorities and threatens to drastically dilute many of the rights and freedoms that distinguished Hong Kong from the mainland. One week on, what is the mood on the ground in Hong Kong? What lies in store for Hong Kong's future? Joining us today from Hong Kong is Austin Ramsey, a reporter for the New York Times, who's been covering Hong Kong and the region for 17 years, with previous postings in Beijing and in India. Thank you so much, Austin, for joining. Thanks for having me, Anand. So, Austin, everyone knew uh, a new national secretary law was in the works uh, following the National People's Congress session in May, but at the same time, the way it was rolled out on the night of June 30th seemed to come as a deep shock to many people. Why was that? And what was your sense uh, being on the ground in Hong Kong on that night? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I, I think if there's one word to describe the mood in Hong Kong, it's shock, both both on the part of uh, government supporters uh, who, who had been who were welcoming this this legislation and uh, mm. and the opposition um, who are, of course, very, very worried about it. But uh, it's 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 a very dramatic change to Hong Kong's position uh, and relationship um with mainland China and its unique status um, and the freedoms and protection of freedoms that it enjoys, um, which are which are much stronger than those in the mainland. And it happened in a, in a very, very sudden sort of way. To me, this is the, the biggest change um, in Hong Kong status since the handover 23 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. but, the, but the handover was something that was had been discussed for, for more than a decade, whereas these changes um, it was a matter of weeks, and and the, the final the wording on the legislation um, didn't didn't come out until until it was um, you know in force. So at eleven p.m. on on June thirtieth, the the law is published, and uh, then people can finally look at it and, and know what's inside. Like going through the law, um, obviously there's a lot of, of there've been specific articles that have been highlighted by people in Hong Kong. Uh, at the at the very uh, heart of it seems to be very broad definitions of what actually constitutes uh, sedition uh, or even terrorism. So, speaking to people in Hong Kong, what is their biggest concern about the law and its implementation? Uh, is the fear that it would be implemented as broadly as some of these crimes are defined in the mainland, for instance? Yes, the, the the real fear is that you know, along with the, the sort of sudden suddenness with which it was implemented, there's no real understanding of what exactly it means uh, in terms of um, you know aiding secession or subversion or things like that uh, mm. or collusion with with foreign powers and right and as, as the law was sort of presented from from the government it was mainly in, in response to to violence of, of the during the protests of the past year but what we've seen over the past few days is a lot of discussion about about speech about language about what words and phrases can or cannot be used um, and much less about sort of violent acts and so we've seen um, the the government announcing that a, that a, a certain protest chant that had become pretty common in the past year um, 
liberate Hong Kong, revolution of our times, um, uh, is now, they say that it puts you in, in, in danger of violation. But at the same time, a, a government decree is not the same as what a court might decide. So a lot of these things are still up to the courts, but we've seen a lot of cases where um, as part of the protest movement, there have been a number of, of shops and restaurants that sort of align themselves with the protesters. They're called, um, it's like the yellow economy, yellow being the color of, of the protests. Right. And these shops would be sort of covered with uh, posters and, and post-it notes with, with slogans and, and things like that. And a lot of them have sort of removed all of that because they just don't know what sort of language might get them in trouble. Um, the other day there was a, a, we're in the middle of a legislative campaign right now, and there was a, um, a person campaigning and a police officer told her to, to not use certain sensitive words because she might get in trouble. Um, wow. We're now seeing people protesting with sort of blank signs um, as a sort of a way to show that um, what this law is doing in terms of, of language and stuff. So the, the ambiguity there is is something that people are really worried about and it seems like part of it's by design that it's sort of to to mm. people are in fear of what they you know what they don't know so i think it's causing a, a great chilling effect in the city it's just been one week um since the law was passed though i'm i'm thinking there it probably feels a lot longer um what's been the sense in terms of how it has impacted for instance uh the turnout of the number of people on the streets uh it's been one year now uh, since that first big rally uh, in June 2019. And we've seen pretty much every weekend since, I think it's no exaggeration to say that thousands of people are actually coming out to the street. Um, over the past week, has there been a demonstrable impact in terms of the number of people coming out in any way, or is it too soon to gauge that? It seems there's been, been some impact, but you have to measure it against a sort of... Um other other pressures on the protest movement. So, so this year you have the um, the COVID pandemic, um, which has been relatively controlled in Hong Kong, but the but the government has um, several social distancing regulations in place. So, beginning on it was a any more than eight people gathering was a violation. I think it's now um, increased to fifty people. But police have used those um, over. Um, this year to, to find people who are participating in protests. At the same time, there was a, um, a change at the top of um, the police in Hong Kong, and the new police chief um, took a much mm. more aggressive approach to, to how um, protests were policed. And so rather than most of last year when protesters would gather. Um, sometimes it would not be an authorized protest, but they would still gather and, and march around and police would only sort of begin to respond hours into it. Now, please mm. now try and block people from even showing up to, to sites where there might be an, auth an authorized protest, begin searching people and things like that. So there have been several factors that have um, sort of clamped down on the protest movement, but the, the security law does seem to be um, adding to that. And so it um, came into effect at 11 p.m. on on June 30th, and then July 1st is is historically a big protest day in Hong Kong. Um, going back to the handover, it's a, it's a holiday. July 1st is the anniversary of the handover, um, oh. and so on um, July 1st, 2003, there was a a, a big march um, that ended up leading the government to drop plans to pass. 
um, security legislation that year. And the, the Hong Kong government hasn't touched it ever since. And that was sort of why Beijing decided to implement it on its own. So there's a great significance to the timing um, that sort of comes in right on the anniversary of, of both Hong Kong's return to China and also the, uh, the big protest that blocked the um, security legislation so long ago. Um, but yeah, it does. I, I was out um, on July 1st and it was interesting to see because, you know, early in the morning, there's a, a flag raising ceremony. That's the, the sort of official um, commemoration of the anniversary. And there's a, a political party, um, sort of a leftist party that has always, always protested that. And they've tried to yeah. sort of storm it. Um, it's, it's led by long hair, um, the League of Social Democrats, who, um, you know, he's sort of a sort of a famous leftist here. Um, right. And they try and take this sort of a funeral pyre um, to crash the flag raising ceremony and they're stopped by police. And so it was, I was curious to see whether this would happen. And it did in fact happen. A small group of them, about 15 came out. Um, they were searched by police. They chanted phrases that may be illegal. We don't know, including um, in, in single party rule, which is basically calling for the, the end of, you know, communist party control in China. Um, and they, they went and they, they gave some speeches and, and they went home and um, there was one who was taken away by police early on, but, but the rest of them were allowed to, to continue. And then later in the day, um, people gathered sort of in an effort to recreate the annual July 1st march. Um, it's been banned by, it was banned by police this year because on social distancing grounds and also the fact that marches over the past year many times have ended um, violently. Um, and, but people did sort of show up in Causeway Bay, which is the neighborhood where, um, that protest March normally begins. And they were, it was, it was quite hard to tell because it's a holiday. There's lots of shop, shoppers out, huge crowds of people, um, because of the police pressure, pe people no longer sort of wear, uh, clothing that sort of identifies them as protesters or, or carry thing or carry signs. Um, so it was, it was quite hard to tell that police sort of began closing down areas where some yeah. some campaigners had um, legislative council campaigners had gathered and then you could hear people chanting and there were sort of these spontaneous marches that started in in part in sort of back streets and things like that and police had blocked off lots of streets so there were large groups of people corralled and some of them were clearly protesters and chanting at police some were just um, bystanders, people shopping, trying to go to work, who were also mad at the police because they couldn't get to where they were going. Um, so it was it was a very sort of uh, mixed and slightly chaotic picture. There was pepper spray and tear gas fired by the police at, at crowds of people. The police brought out their their water cannon um, truck and fired it at protesters and and reporters. Um, so there there was a protest. Um, but it, you know, it's it was very different, and and it, it marked the beginning of protest under the national security law. So we saw this very strange thing where, um, in Hong Kong, police have these like banners to sort of warn right. protesters. So there's a there's a blue banner that tells you this is an illegal gathering that you should leave. There's a the, the black banner is the sort of the famous one because it signals that the police are about to use tear gas. Um, but now there's a uh, the purple banner, 
and it has, it's very, very wordy. <laughs> it has, it has a, lo a lot of phrases on it. It's like almost impossible to read at any distance, but it basically warns that this gathering may be in violation of the national security law. Um, and it's, so it's very interesting to see how the police are trying to sort of, based on chants or, or, or signs or, or words that are used by the group groups, um, that, that they now fall under this security law. And so that, that was used, it came out a few times, um, on July 1st. So Austin, we've seen that there already have been a few arrests made under the law. Of course, Hong Kong's courts and independent judiciary has been one of the things that distinguishes it from the mainland. Is there any sense that the courts could offer any protection against how this law would be implemented? Well, Hong Kong's courts are, um, you know, famously independent, and that's, that's something that people in Hong Kong have great pride in. Um, and generally speaking, there's, there's great faith in the judiciary in Hong Kong. Um, there is obviously uh, criticism of individual rulings and decisions and things like that. But I think by and large, there, there's still great faith in the ju judiciary. Um, but this law contains several provisions that sort of um, have at least raised concerns. Um, one is that uh, the um, Hong Kong chief executive, the sort of top political official in Hong Kong, will appoint the judges ruling in national security cases. Um, so already, you know, they, so these are Hong Kong judges, um, well, well respected Hong Kong judges, but it does raise a question of um, traditionally the, the chief justice had had appointed judges for specific cases. So it raises questions of why you need a political official to, to do that. Then there, there's the question of um, the law sort of says in, in, in serious or complicated cases that they, those can be tried in the mainland. So you sort of completely by, bypass the, the local legal system, local judiciary. Um, and that's obviously a huge concern. That was, that was also a huge concern last year because uh, over the, um, the extradition law that was proposed and, and really set off the protests last year, um, that the government dropped that in the face of those huge protests. But it's now... You know, we now have that um, on steroids in a way um, with this new national security law. And we're two months away now from uh, elections for Hong Kong's Legislative Council. And just so our listeners have an idea of how that works, I think it's about just for half of the seats uh, in the Hong Kong legislature that are directly elected. Is there a sense of how this law may or may not impact uh, how especially the pro-democracy political parties approach the September elections. There have been reports of some people even uh, leaving their political parties, some people talking about emigrating. Is there a sense of how this is going to impact uh, the political landscape of Hong Kong? Yes, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of um, concern about how, how this might affect um, the upcoming election. So the, the election is for all 70 seats in the LegCo, but it's, you, you raise an important point that just about only half of those are sort of um, represent geographical constituencies and the other half are sort of what's called functional constituencies usually industry related and often can be very small numbers of say right. all the insurance companies so those are generally um, seats that fall um, or that, that are um, go to go to the um, establishment so oh. but, but there are 35 um, sort of geographical constituencies that, that are hotly contested. 
And one thing that has happened over the past few years is that um, candidates, um, generally opposition candidates, um, have been disqualified um, either before they can even run or oh. after the 2016 vote, um, after they were elected. Um, oh, generally over things sort of, there was a big, there were six um, alleged people who, who won seats were disqualified over how they um, delivered their um, oaths of office, sort of sometimes oh. done in a sort of protest fashion. But for the people who are disqualified before the vote, it's generally over um, whether they can are seen as being able to uphold the basic law, which is sort of Hong Kong's constitution, and um, you know whether they they recognize Chinese sovereignty over Hong Kong, things like that. And now there are questions about whether um, criticism of the national security law could be used to disqualify people because the the national security law you know sort of falls under the basic law. Um, so that's that's kind of up in the air. It, we don't really know um, that, but there have been things we've seen the sort of I don't know. I guess you call them dirty tricks of like uh, uh, opposition candidates say that there have been signs that they do not approve, but are sort of um, look to be sort of their campaign signs. But but it the language is is them denouncing the national security law. So they they fear that these are efforts to try and try and get them disqualified um, ahead of the election. But it is a great fear. It is also something that the, the opposition camp, um, they, they have to sort of pick, uh, have to be ready to have backup candidates in the case that uh, um, their, their first choice uh, candidates are, are disqualified. So it does, will have a big effect on, on this upcoming election. Lastly, Austin, Hong Kong is, emerging as a geopolitical issue as well. It's become now a matter of tensions, not just between China and the US, but with the UK as well. Coming to the UK first, uh, what has been the reaction uh, to the recent offer to allow at least some people in Hong Kong to potentially emigrate to the UK? Has that been getting a lot of attention in Hong Kong? It has. So, so um, back before the handover in, in 97, the, the British created this sort of, uh, it's called a British National Overseas Passport um, oh. for Hong Kongers, which doesn't give you citizenship, but it gives you um, special entry rights into the UK. You do get some like, consular protection, some things like that. Oh. And so what they proposed is, is BNO holders, um, can, can go to Britain, um, work or study for a period of five years, and then um, then begin a sort of path to citizenship if they choose. Um, and it's a, I think the number of people who actually have this passport is about 300,000, but there's a much larger group of about 3 million. Um, it's like about 40% of Hong Kong's population that's eligible for this. So it's, it's really hard to say how many people will actually take this up, but I have, have heard from people um, who are renewing their BNOs or applying, or it, it seems like people want to have um, a backup plan. You know, if they have the the means and the, the and the money um, to to do so, they they want to be thinking about where could they go if they need to. And coming to the U.S., uh, obviously, China-U.S. relations were in any case um, probably falling off a cliff even before. Developments in Hong Kong, uh, 
are following the national security law. So what has been the reaction from Beijing uh, in terms of how the U.S. has responded to the law? Have we seen uh, legislation coming up uh, both in the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives as well? So what impact do you think this will have going forward uh, on China-U.S. relations? Yeah, well, obviously, it's 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 not going to help things. Um, it's relations are at quite a bad point. Um, it's hard to say how much the Hong Kong situation specifically will affect things, um, hmm. given the overall um, poor state. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, um, the Trump administration, and particularly um, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, have, have made this an issue. Um, he speaks out about this a lot. Uh, he's sort of enemy number one in the, the Chinese state media, and um, they've been very critical of him and critical of the U.S. sort of stance on Hong Kong. They see this as interference um, in an internal matter, um, uh. which is something very, very sensitive. So it seems like this is only going to exacerbate things, um, and it, it doesn't seem like it will help relations get on a better track in the near future. Interesting times ahead and troubling times for Hong Kong. Austin Ramsey, thank you so much for joining us today from Hong Kong. My pleasure. Thank you, Anand.